Okay. Well, I think we'll go ahead and start, and there'll be a lot of scripture references I'll give you. I won't read them all because we'll run out of time for sure, but I'll be able to give you enough to give you the gist of what we're talking about. Um, So let me just pray before we start. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us, and that we would enjoy your presence as we learn about you and your ways. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, first thing I wanted to just throw out there, and I meant to do this last week, and I don't know why, I guess I forgot so I could do it this week, but uh, it's very important that you always remain teachable, regardless of what you've been taught, regardless of what you think, a year from now you're going to be different, and if you close off an area of what God's doing because you don't like the package, you don't like the way it's delivered, you don't like something, you will miss what he's trying to get to you. And many times, God will present something for you just outside of what you normally would recognize to see if you're open. You don't have to worry about deception or anything like that. When you're, when you're open to the Lord, he can show you things through homeless people, through drunks, through people you wouldn't normally associate with, but there'll be something that the Spirit's doing if you're open and you can get the nugget that he's trying to get to you. And often if you don't do that, you'll be stuck. And we have people at the altar all the time who say, I can't hear from the Lord. I don't know why he's not talking to me. And we're like, he's talking to you. I think he wants to know why you're not listening (laughs) because it's just outside of this. And, um, and often I've learned my greatest lessons when they were presented in the worst packages. And it, it humbles you. You have to swallow your pride and listen and then let the Spirit of God speak to you. So being teachable is, is critical for everything God wants to do as far as discipleship goes. And if you look at Acts 10, when Peter has the vision of the animals coming down, it goes against everything he'd ever been taught his whole life. And God tells him three times kill and eat, and he's three times, says, no way. And then when it goes up the third time, he does go with Cornelius' group. And later in that chapter 10, he says, God has shown me that no men uh, are invaluable, that we're all the same. And so it was in the vision of the, it had nothing to do with food. It was in the vision of the animals which confronted his preconceived ideas that God finally released the gospel to the Gentiles. And if you read the story, it's a fascinating story because they get the Holy Spirit before they even get baptized. And you can see all the Jews going, well, I guess we got to baptize them because look at them. <laughs> They're all speaking in tongues. <laughs> so, and, they, and they baptize them. So being teachable is critical for, as you walk with the Lord. You're never going to attain everything he wants for you in this life, ever. If you learned every day until the day you die, you're never going to finish because he's inexhaustible. His character is way beyond anything we can comprehend. And so he's always going to be revealing things as you are ready for them. And it's not a point in time. I mean, it's not a time frame. He doesn't say in three months you're going to know all this about me. He says, when you get here, I'll tell you some more. And that can be three months or three years, depending on your response to what he's doing. And there's times in my life that I've drug on a one-week lesson over a year. And other times, I've actually got it fairly quickly. So, and it's not a question of feeling guilty or 
uh, you know, groveling around like you're nothing. It's more an idea of, of an attitude and posture of being teachable so that he can tell you the next thing because you only have so much time on this earth. When you get to heaven, you're not going to need any of this. You'll have it all. So we want to start with um, talking about grace. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, you're all familiar with it. You're saved by grace through faith. And faith changes things. All right. When Jesus spoke to the, to the fig tree, he changed the circumstance. The tree died. The scripture says in Romans that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you hear the word of God, it builds faith, and faith is actually used to change things. So when Jesus walked by the fig tree, he said, you know, no man will eat fruit of you again, and then you have this tribe of disciples probably behind him. And I always think of Monty Python skits when I'm thinking of funny stuff, of Jesus walking by, telling the tree, that's it for you, and all the disciples walking by going, yeah, that's it for you. And then the next day they come back by and the tree's dead. And Jesus just keeps walking, and I can see them behind him going, it's really dead. <laughs> it is dead. So faith comes by hearing from the Word of God, and it is activated by what comes out of your mouth. I think it's Mark eleven twenty four that says, um, I think it's that, 23, that by what comes out of your mouth is faith. That's how you know what faith is. It goes in and comes out. It's not like the Dead Sea, which just goes in and dies. Now, the church is full of people that have been pumped full that are dying in the seas because they're not giving it an outlet. So you can only hold so much, and if you don't let it out, it's just going to start to, to fester and, and die. And then you'll get bitter, and you'll be a problem for me and everybody else here because, <laughs> well, not really for me, but... So faith changes things. Grace changes people. Okay, how many of you have um, family members who aren't saved? How many of you are praying for your family members? Okay, do you have faith for your family members? Why aren't they saved? Because it takes more than faith for someone to get saved. Okay, faith changes things. Grace changes people. You were saved by grace through faith. It's the power of God that came to you when you got saved that made you a new creature is grace, not faith. You were saved by grace through faith. The grace presented itself. You thought it was an option and agreed, and your faith then was activated and you became a new creature. Okay, And it's always in that order. It's by grace through faith. So everything that God does is by grace through faith for us. So when Jesus spoke to the fig tree, the tree can't resist. It has no will. So by faith, he could curse the tree. But you can't get your family members saved because they have a will. They can say no. And he will not override that. But the presence of grace in their life will give them the power to make the same decision that you made to get saved and become a new creature. Does that make sense? Okay. So the first manifestation in your heart is grace. Grace is God's ability in you. And I know you've heard Pastor Carol say it's, it's unmerited favor and divine ability. When it is both. 
but the definition I use is grace is God's ability in you, which gives you the desire and the power to obey. So every decision you make when you're with the Lord, every time you're faced with a, with a decision, the grace comes and it sits and hovers right here and waits for you to choose. When you choose, the grace empowers you, and it gives you the ability not just to obey, but the desire to obey. So let's say God's calling you to a fast, and you really don't like fasting. So far, that's a good description of me. And so if he's calling me to that, the grace comes for me to fast, whether I want to or not. Now, the decision is mine. If I, if I say I do, I'll do it, I receive the grace. I get not only the power to do it, but I have the desire to obey. And then I can succeed. If I reject it, then it's going to go, and I'll never be able to fast. I just won't. The whole reason I rejected it was I didn't want to fast. You understand? So it's, it's a very simple process of a very complex thing really, the power of God activated in your life at your discretion, which is kind of scary, which means that every day you have the ability to obey or to disobey. And if you want more of God's presence in your life, you're going to have to learn to obey, even if it's not fun. It usually is once you get used to it. So there's a description of Jesus in John, John 1. It says he's light. In him was life, and he, that life was the light of men. So the description of Jesus is, is life. In verse 14 of John 1, it says he was full of grace and truth. Truth without grace is law. All right? It's just, it just tells you what it is. And what does the law do for you? Absolutely nothing. It just gives you a, a framework to say that you're guilty. That's it. It doesn't help in any way. And I think sometimes that's where we, we get off track is we, we view ourselves through the law and then assume that grace is the covering for that failure. And that is not the way grace is in Scripture. It says in Peter that love covers sin, not grace. By the time grace is here, that gives you the ability not to sin. When you let that go and you fail, now you need forgiveness. And that love of Christ is what? covers that. So you can't, you can't ignore what God's doing, then repent for being disobedient, and expect not to be guilty. Because you're guilty by the very fact that you knew what to do and didn't do it. And if it's just law, then you're guilty. You have no way out. Grace gives you the ability to obey the law. It goes beyond the law. Remember Jesus said, I didn't come to fulfill the law. I came to go beyond the law. And he was full of grace and truth. So when he came, uh, for, for example, um, he said, you've heard, it, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. He says, I'm telling you, if you even hate your brother, you've committed murder. He said, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you look at a man or a man looks, or, or a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So it, it didn't get easier when Jesus came, it got harder. All of a sudden, he went from dealing with your actions to dealing with your intent before it ever manifests in action. 
And that's because the grace comes at intent. It doesn't come during the action. So when the thought comes, you immediately have the ability, by grace, to deal with that thought. And Jesus even said it this way, it's not what comes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out. If that takes root in you because you've resisted the grace to overcome, then it will manifest in an action that's unrighteous, whatever it is. So grace actually gives you the ability to deal with the intent of your heart before anybody else sees what's really there. And I know if you're like me, I don't want everybody seeing what was in my heart because all kinds of things come through there just like they do for you. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus was tempted in all ways like you are. So you're not special. We're not unique. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no one is overtaken by anything that's not common to man. Okay? So you're not that special. You're just normal. We all are. But we can deal with it at the, at the heart level before it manifests in actions. Sorry, I start rambling, then I forget where I am. I don't forget where I am. I know where I am here. I forget where I am in here. Okay, we're led internally now, not externally. In the Old Testament, it was a cloud by day and fire by night. Everything was outside. Now, the the grace that Noah found is not the grace that you and I have. I think it's Genesis 6, 8, where it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and it's called grace in some places, other uh, uh, interpretations. But the grace we have is different because of Jesus. So we're not led uh, externally anymore. I'm not led by circumstances. If I look at circumstances, the enemy will drive me crazy. He always will. Because if you think about it, if God opens a door for me, how hard is it for the enemy to open doors? It's not hard. How am I going to know which door if there's five open in front of me instead of just one? If I have to find the peace. Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God rule and reign in your heart. You can look at a door and know, you know what, there's something wrong with that door. I'm not supposed to go through that door. And if you miss it, you know what you do? You just repent. Say, sorry, I missed that one. Or speak louder, I'm not getting it. Or wait. You're never, you're never going to offend God with the right heart, even though your actions may be slow. You'll offend him when you quit considering him before you do your actions. That's what's offensive. Because he's done everything for you to succeed, and then when you run in like a bull in a china shop and do whatever you want, and then expect him to bless it, and then get mad at him when he doesn't, that's the height of arrogance, if you think about it. Yes. Um, well, I'm just saying, if God's provided every way for you to succeed, and you know that you have God's, you have His Spirit in you. Okay, you got the Holy Spirit in you. John sixteen thirteen. He'll lead you into all the truth. It's not just the truth about the gospel. It's the truth about everything. The truth about what you read, the truth about your circumstances. It's the still small voice that says, don't go down that alley, go this way. Or the one in Proverbs that says, 
the man who sees evil and goes the other way is wise, you know. Uh, so he's provided every way for us to succeed. The only thing that gets in the way is my desires, honestly. So I had a, a girl that was going to come help us in Kiev. We prayed with her. Her pastor was on board. Her parents were on board. We'd done all the, started the paperwork for the visa. She was immediate on her responses to emails. And then all of a sudden it started getting slower on the response. And then it got dead quiet. So I called. Her name was Rachel. And I just said, hey, Rachel, what's up? And uh, she said, you won't believe it. I got my dream job. I said, really? She said, yeah, it's been, you know, it's the job I've been waiting for my whole life. I said, well, didn't you pray about coming to Kiev? And she said, yes. And didn't you talk to your pastor and your parents? And they prayed and confirmed with you. Oh, yeah, but this is my dream job. So she never came. So the point is, if you let your desires get in the way of what God is leading you to, it will derail you because it only takes a few degrees separation at the beginning and you're way off later on. So do I believe that God can bless her in that job? Yeah, sure, that's his character. He's blessed me when I've been disobedient in spite of my disobedience, not because of it. But do I think it could have been better for her? Without a doubt. Because we all had confirmation that she was supposed to come. But because this job presented itself. So what I'm saying is when when God gives you every way to succeed and you choose to fail, that's offensive. Not the way we would be offended. Because we would be offended for our sakes. He gets offended for his sake. Because he is the king. It's not like we're on the same playing field with offense here. He's the only one who has a right to be offended. He's the one who created us. Does that make sense? So, and, and the same way, if God closes a door, the enemy can close all the doors too. That's why we're not led outside anymore. If you're led by circumstances and external things, you're going to be so far out there that you're not going to be any good to anybody, including yourself. Because there's going to be times where everybody goes that way and God's going to tell you to go this way. And if you're not sure of that voice and able to receive the grace to do it, you'll follow the crowd and miss totally. And you'll be in counseling in five years because you can't figure out where God went. Or you'll you'll come and say something like this. I'm under attack. Of course you're under attack. He's trying to kill you. Quit cooperating. Stand against him. Find out what God wants. If you're not sure, stop until you know. But God will make his way very plain to you. If you. But you have to die to the desires that keep you in this track. And if he knows that these desires are keeping you in this track, he's going to speak to you right here. And that's like we talked about at the very beginning. If you're teachable, you'll recognize, okay, God, I've let my desires get in the way of what you want Forgive me, and I'll move over, and then everything will start to, to function again. Because it's not loving for him to give you something that's going to hurt you. And sometimes he withholds things because we're not mature enough to handle it. And one of the ways we get mature is learning to just walk with him. Because there does come a point of maturity where what he's leading you to is irrelevant because he's with you. 
and his presence. We talked about this last week. His, the desire for him will supersede your desire for ministry or your desire to be known or whatever it is that, that drives you. So that was a really long answer to that little. <laughs> okay, so the law can't help you. But grace offers help. It's the power that gives you the desire. Let's look at Hebrews 2.9. I was going to mark these, but then I thought there's so many references, I'd just have a whole bunch of tags, and I wouldn't know where they were anyway. Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So how did Jesus taste death for everybody? By grace. The same way we have to do things. Jesus took all of his deity and put it aside to come down here and live as an example to show us how to do this. And he went through everything you're going to go through, yet was without sin. So that he could be the example. Where did, where's the story of him getting the grace? Do you remember? That's a trick question because I looked it up, so I know where it is. It's Matthew 26, 36 to 46. It's when he's in the garden where he goes in. He says, will you pray? He goes in farther, and he says, I don't want to die. Three times he begs the Father, I don't want to have to die. In verse 44 of Matthew 26, And I know I'm going through this really fast, so I just trust the Holy Spirit will give you enough peace that you can look up some of these things yourself when we're done. Matthew 26, about verse 44, says, He went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words, which is, If this cup can pass, please, I don't want to die. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Okay, so three times he says, I don't want to die. And then all of a sudden in verse 45, he's like, wake up, let's go. It's time. So what happened there? This is a perfect picture of what grace looks like. We just read in Hebrews that it was grace that allowed him to die for everyone. In verse 45 right here is where he got it. It came and he said, okay, let's go. He never questions that again the rest of the time. He had the power and the desire to go and die for everyone. And it's the same way we do it. Whatever God requires of you, he will let you talk with him about it. But then you have to decide. And Jesus decided, whatever you want, Father, I'll do it. And God said, okay, you got to die. And he did. And the beautiful, most beautiful picture of that is he never brings it up again. I mean, if it was me, I'm thinking the, the second week I'd be like, can we talk again? You know, are you sure you heard me? Uh, but he never questions it, and he does it. But the idea that he loved it and he came to do that because he was excited about it is ludicrous. He didn't want to, but he ended up doing it for us. <laughs> so how do you get grace? 
All right, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Seeing that we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to, for t- in our time of need. Okay, when's your time of need? Pre or post sin? It's pre. After sin, you need forgiveness. So we have a picture of Jesus who was tempted in every, everything you've ever been tempted by, he was tempted with. Not the specifics, obviously, that'd be silly. But the general idea, the temptations that we all face. And then he went to the throne of grace to obtain grace and mercy in his time of need, which was pre-sin since he didn't sin. He never had to get forgiveness for sinning because he never sinned, which means we don't ever have to sin again, which means you're responsible for your own sin. It's not that you're you're destined to do it. James says you're drawn away by your own lust. Your own appetites are what draw you into sin. It's the same thing when when your own desires, and you know, sin isn't always a bad thing. It can be a good thing that's out of the obedience of God. If God tells you to go right and you go left, that's sin. Scripture says he who knows what to do and doesn't, or the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. So I think we have in this, in our minds, or at least I used to, that when we're talking about sin, we're talking about bad things. Well, yeah, bad things are sin, but good things can be sin too if he's never said to do that. Uh, Bill Gothard used to say something. He'd say, others may, you cannot. And what he's saying is everybody's individual calling is individual. Some people can watch certain types of movies. Other people are not supposed to. But it's an individual thing. If you go with the crowd, you're going to suffer. You have to know and receive the grace to obey what he's telling you. And you know, the only time... Uh, peer pressure gets to be a problem is when the ones who are being told, and I'm talking about in church, the ones who are being told something that they don't want to do will try to get you to have to do it so that they have company in their misery. That's the only reason. But if you ever become completely settled in who you are in him, then whatever God tells you to do and you obey, you'll experience the fullness of of the spirit wherever that is. You may be lonely at times, but you'll be fulfilled, and you'll be happy, and you won't suffer by being disobedient. I think disobedience is really going to start manifesting itself more and more and more in the months and years ahead. I think God's tired of our little games of partial obedience, of just kind of sliding in and out as we feel comfortable. And even some of the leaders that we've heard lately that are renouncing their faith, I think this is a cleansing. You know, some people are like, well, that's really sad. Well, yeah, it's sad, but he's purifying the church. He's not allowing these things to stay anymore. And uh, so that, for that, we should be excited, although it should be a warning to us. Don't play, at least with things that deal with obedience and what God's asking you to do. 
So faith comes by hearing, grace comes by praying. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you can obtain grace and mercy in your time of need pre-sin. Which means every temptation, you have a way out. If you choose it. The hard thing is you're choosing against your own appetites. And that's what I noticed um, in so many Christians, myself included, is that as you mature, you start to allow the world back in because you're free. I'm free, brother. Um, And yes, you are. But you're free to obey. You're not free to do what you want to do. And it's gotten, if you ever notice, that the zealousness of a new believer is infectious because it's not been tainted with the world. And we're so connected to the world, even in the way we view church. You know, as Carol said something a couple weeks ago, he said that this is an auditorium. This is the sanctuary. This is where the spirit is. Now, he'll manifest himself in the group, when we're all together, but as far as the actual sanctuary, it's you and me. And everything we need is in here. It's not out here. I should bring something to this instead of taking something from this. You know, when you're whole and complete and walking in the fullness of the grace of God, you do not suck the life out of people. You give life. And we all know people that when we get in their presence, you can feel it. It's just like this... Can't breathe. And they may be the nicest people. But if you're not getting all of your identity and all of your needs met by God Himself, nobody on earth will be able to do that for you. You'll never be able to walk complete and in, in total freedom as long as you're connected to somebody else here. Only when you're connected to Him. So you don't have to sin again. Second Peter 3.18 says that we're to grow in the grace of God. If you get grace by praying, how do you grow in the grace of God? Grow in your prayer life. Learn to pray. Be aware of his presence. It doesn't have to be a formal liturgical prayer. Just acknowledge that he's with you. Just the idea, if you can get in your head, the idea that he's standing beside you, it will keep you from so much. Because, you know, if, you know, we talked a little bit last week about integrity. If you watch something different when you're by yourself that you would with this crowd, you've got a problem. Because you're not integrous. You're feeding your appetites when you think you're alone, but you forget is that God himself is standing right beside you the whole time. And that's really what accountability is. It's being seen to where it keeps you from doing something bad. Because you don't want to be seen doing something bad. And if you get an awareness of his presence, always, 24-7, he's with you, then your actions start to line up with the fact that you're standing in the presence of a holy God. Not in the fear like, oh no, he's going to smack me. But it's, oh no, it's him. And he's so awesome and wonderful that just his presence brings judgment. He doesn't have to say a word. Just the idea that he's there will bring conviction, if needed. Or it can bring comfort, or whatever's needed for you for that moment.
I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. I'm just saying the more aware you are of him, the easier it is to get grace to get through whatever it is you've got to get through. It's a tangible thing. Grace is. It's a power. It changed you into a brand new creature instantaneously. That's some pretty strong stuff. It gave Jesus the ability to die for everybody at one time. It's not, a, it's not just this light, airy toy that floats through the air. It's an extremely strong power that comes from the very throne room of God through his son who gave us access to it because of his perfect life. And he said, now you can have the same thing I had. And there's nothing more um, exhilarating than overcoming something in your life by the grace of God because you knew he was with you and you appropriated the power and the strength that he had to overcome it. And then you're never, and you're never, when you do it by his power, you're never tempted to take the credit for it. Because you know where it came from. And that puts you in a position to be used for all kinds of things. All right, let me hurry here. Uh, you don't get grace for tomorrow till tomorrow. You get it when the challenge comes. They didn't get grace to feed 5,000 until it was the time to feed 5,000. Same way for you. You can't get grace for next week. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough troubles. You don't need to worry when you understand that the power for tomorrow is there tomorrow. Then you can sleep well. Because tomorrow will have its own issues and you'll know how to deal with it. All right, in 1 Corinthians 3, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but I think it's important to note. um, 4 to 15, 1 Corinthians 3, 4 to 15 is... Paul writing about being uh, a master builder. I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the the text. So starting in verse 4, he says, when one says, I'm of Paul, or another, I'm of Paulus, are you not carnal? And who then is Paul? But ministers, um, 6, I planted, Paulus watered, God gave the increase. Uh, Neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He who plants... We're God's fellow workers, down in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. Okay, so Paul's saying, I had the grace to be a master builder, and I laid the foundation, and you need to be careful how you build. So, and then he goes on, he says, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. And you go on and it says, if when the fire comes, if your work remains, you get a reward. If it's burned up, you'll suffer loss. If everything you do is burned up, you yourself will still be saved. Okay, now how is it possible? Let's say all the works that I've done my whole life are right here. And yours are beside you. And the fire comes. And your, your pile goes to about half. And mine is gone completely. Just smoke And he says, well, you're saved. How is it everything I've done could burn up and I could still be saved? Okay. I was saved by grace. The only thing I ever did by grace was get saved. Anything you do without grace is dead works. And it's going to burn when the fire comes. So everything you, like if you don't pray... To get the grace 
And when I'm talking about praying, I'm not saying, you know, go in your closet and spend 25 minutes looking at the east wall and do your vows and all that. What I'm saying is when you're not in communion with God, getting his heart for what he wants you to do, then using his power to do it. See, when he does something, it's eternal immediately. Even non-Christians are eternal. They won't be in an eternally good place. So when he breathes on something, it's forever. If you do it in your own strength, it's going to die. So the fire will come, and he's going to look at your pile of work, and half of it's going to be gone, and you're going to, it says you're going to suffer loss. Whatever st- stays, you get a reward. What, what he does is he gives you a reward for doing stuff with his power. Because that's pure. And I think that's one of the reasons when we get to Revelation, it says he gives us our crown and we look at him and just hand it back. And say, well, this is probably yours. <laughs> so anything you can do without praying is going to be dead works. And that's why your strengths are your biggest hindrance, not your weaknesses. If I ask you to list your strengths, you'd give me one or two. And if I said, what's your weaknesses, you'd give me 20 but you don't submit those two to the Lord because they're your strengths. You don't need him to perform at a high level in those things. And that's why it has to be independent of what you're doing. Your relationship with him, your prayer life, your connectedness to the Holy Spirit has to be in every area so that when you actually are doing a strength in his power, it's amazing what happens. And you've seen, we've seen it here. Uh, you'll have a... a Really good singer, great song. During the, you always have to have a good song during the offering so you get a better offering. And uh, it's great, but nothing really changes. Very good, high standard. Then you have someone who comes out, they're, they're fairly shaky voice, they're a little bit, you know, nervous, we're nervous for them, and they open their mouth and they begin to sing and the grace drops and God's presence fills the room and everything all of a sudden is different. That's the difference between doing it in your own strength and doing it with grace. Now, you can be a a talented singer and do it with grace, and it's amazing what can happen. So you don't minimize your strengths. You submit them and let them become even greater than they've ever been. Because all of your talents and giftings are for us. We're supposed to enjoy that. Don't be greedy and hold that from us. And don't hoard it and do it yourself where we don't get the life from it because there's no spirit in it. It's just a good performance. When it's submitted and you have the grace of God, it will give life to everybody it touches. And then you get a reward for it at the end. Okay, lastly, any questions about that? I'm going to get a cricket soundtrack from my phone. So I can just... All right. Lastly, Galatians 2.21, don't frustrate the grace of God. How can you frustrate the grace of God? Uh, Galatians 2.21. You frustrate the grace of God by not using it when it comes. He sends it for you, and you just do it in your own strength. Paul says, don't do that. Because I don't care how good you are, it won't be as good as if he's involved with you. Okay, let's move on. There's uh, a couple things that will keep you from being able to receive grace, no matter how much you pray. 
One is unforgiveness, which we'll talk about next week. And the other is pride. James 4, 6. God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. So if you have pride in your heart, it doesn't matter how much you pray, he's going to resist. And that word resist is not just ignore you. It's coming against everything you're doing. Because pride is what put us in this mess to begin with from the very beginning. He does not tolerate pride. And unfortunately, I don't think you'll ever get to the, the end of it in your life. Maybe you will. It's an, it's an inordinate self-esteem or an unreasonable conceit of your own superiority is, is what pride is. Uh, maybe you're talented, your beauty, your wealth, your can be anything. Uh, and one form of pride is to, is to act and think in a way that shows that you don't need God, that you can handle this. And God will oppose that. The greatest, the, your greatest hindrance to knowing God is pride because he will not reveal himself in your pride. And so I would say sometimes when it gets quiet, it's, it's you that's causing the problem, not him. But he will not speak to you. All contention and division in the body of Christ comes from pride. Every bit of it. There's not one issue in this church or any other church that isn't initiated by pride. Even if you're right, you can be wrong if it's not done properly. So if you have pride or you have issues that reveal pride, you can't get grace for anything because he resists that. He will not, uh, he just won't engage in you. And it's not, humility is not something that God does. You can't say, God, humble me. You choose humility. And then once you've made the choice, he'll give you the grace that will teach you humility. Depends on what you need it in. I, I would have no idea. Pride is destructive, and it's going to destroy you. If you have difficulty getting along with someone, who has the problem? I do. Years ago, I was with a leader, and we were talking about something, and I didn't like what his answer was, and I just looked at him and said, you know, I, I have a problem with that. And he laughed. He goes, then you have a problem. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. I can voice my opinion, but I can't have anything attached to it. I can't have an emotional attachment to his response or your response, or I'm really not ready to say it. I should just be quiet. But pride would say, I have an opinion that, that has more value than your opinion. And it's, it's always threatened. Pride is always threatened when you're asked to serve. So we'll just do a little inventory here. If someone asks you to do something, what do you feel? What's in the inside of you? you we may not see it. God sees it. You know, you may say, sure, with a smile on your face and inside you're going, I can't believe they asked me to do that. I get so tired of doing that. You know, only you can answer those things. But those are the things that keep you from being able to get grace when you need it. Uh, pride is envious. So let's say one of you wins the lottery. Instead of celebrating with you, I get upset that I didn't win the lottery. I knew I should have played. You know, you know what I'm saying? Can I rejoice when God blesses you without feeling 
like I'm less or that I deserve something. Because if I do, that's pride. It's like, well, I deserve that. And we run into this every day. If you actually start to take stock of your relationships and the, what people are saying, you're going, to run, you're going to find this everywhere. And it's always been there, but you've just not been aware of it. So it doesn't rejoice when others rejoice. Pity is rooted in pride. Envy is selfish and proud. If you keep love back from others, that's pride. So if I need to, you know, it says the scriptures to, to correct and rebuke and to train, and uh, we have scriptures for all that. If I see that you need correction and I don't give it to you lovingly, that's pride on my part. And I've had that happen where I knew I should say something, but I wanted them to suffer more before I gave them a way out. Which would have totally ruined it anyway, but... I just didn't say anything. That's pride. and no, I didn't say a word, so nobody would have known except me and God telling me. And it's a very subtle thing. Pride always wants to be strong, won't admit mistakes. You know, if somebody, if I make a mistake and you call me on it, and the first words out of my mouth are an excuse or why somebody else was to blame, that's pride. It may be true, but it's still pride. Because I make mistakes all the time. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was here, and I made a mistake, and somebody called me on it and then told everybody about it here. And I was, I was intrigued, because I thought, why do you celebrate my failure so much? You know, why do you need to elevate yourself? Are you that low that you have to shove me down to get to where you feel? But it's so subtle because we learn to live this way. We've lived this way our whole lives. And then we, we put Christianese around it and package it a little differently. Uh, it's like going to a prayer meeting and it's really a gossip session with five minutes of prayer at the end. Did you hear about so-and-so? We need to pray for them. Did you hear about that? Um, you know, really, if you think about it, do you need to know what to pray about? Who's supposed to tell you? Holy Spirit will tell you. And it's so easy to get into gossip and manipulation and all of that by knowing details that are irrelevant. It's not, we don't need to rehearse what happened. We need to fix it for them in the future. I'm not saying I'm there always. And, and of course, there's, you know, don't make doctrine out of all of this. But I'm, I think we just need to be careful. There's nothing wrong with not knowing and praying. And pride doesn't want to receive, usually, because then you feel like you're beholding to somebody. And, and this is a biggie, too, this last one, uh, and then we'll move on to humility. Uh, sarcastic humor, a lot of times, is an indication of pride. And it's an elevation of self. Now, there's times where it's okay. It depends on the relationship with the person that you're talking to and how you interact. Like, I, I have people that... I'm sarcastic with, but they know I love them beyond anything. And they're sarcastic with me, and it's not meant to be a detriment. But a lot of times, sarcasm is meant to, to dig and to, to make you feel less. And, you know, there's times where, honestly, that I've said a couple things that was fine, and I said the third thing, and the Holy Spirit was like, that's too much. You need to go ask them to forgive you. 
and I've done it, and they're like, oh, I was fine. And I'm like, that's not the point. It's not about you. It's the Holy Spirit convicting me. I need you to release me from what I did. You know, I'm glad you're strong and it didn't affect you. But the Holy Spirit's trying to train me how to respond to people. And so I have to be in tune with that voice. And if I've got pride, I can't hear. <coughs> All right, so the opposite of that is um, humility. Humility is just choosing to be known for who you really are. Nothing more, nothing less. You know, if somebody comes to you and says, that was a really good job, and you say, oh, it was nothing. That's called false humility, which is pride. All right. So what do you say if somebody gives you a compliment? Thank you. That's it. And if you feel the need, you can thank the people in your life that have brought you to that point. Because no, there is no such thing as a self-made man. They don't exist. Or a woman. Everybody needed somebody. At least starting with your parents to even have life. You had coaches. You had trainers. You had teachers. You had bosses. And they've all helped you develop your skills to get you to where you are. So yes, acknowledge that you've done well with what you had, but then deflect the praise back to them. Because I've had great men in my life that have made me who I am. I mean, I, had, I sat under Carol for seven or eight years before I went to YWAM, and then had an amazing discipler that I was with for 11 years. Didn't always like him, but he was really good. So in Exodus 33, 11, I believe, it says that Moses talked to God face to face. It says he was the most humble man on the face of the earth, and he talked to God face to face. Your, the level of your humility will determine how close you can get to God and talk with him. And it's a quality for friendship. And later on, there's a place where Miriam and Aaron, I think, were talking against uh, Moses, I think is after he married the Ethiopian woman. And uh, so they were murmuring and complaining, and God called a meeting. He's asking them to come, and I'm sure they were walking to the meeting like, yeah, God called us. And then he said, why weren't you afraid to speak against my, my servant Moses? Don't you know I speak to him as a friend face to face? So your level of humility will determine the closeness with which God can get to speak to you. And God is always much more concerned with your response to what's happened than what's happened. It doesn't mean he likes what's happened to you. It doesn't mean he likes the situation in any way. But your response determines directly how much he can be involved. Because if you humble yourself, you have access to grace. Grace is how you forgive or how you move forward when you've been hurt or slandered or whatever going through sickness. Does that make sense? So when God's waiting, he, you know, the angels came to minister to Jesus after he was tempted. They didn't come and help him through the temptation for 40 days. He went through it. The devil left and the angels came. And God waits for your response to the test and trial that comes your way because that response will determine whether the angels can come and minister to you. doesn't mean it's a pleasant time. I'm sure after 40 days in the desert with the devil on, on his back the whole time, that wasn't pleasant. We sometimes read these stories and we don't take into account that he was a man. 
And he's going, he's, of course, he's, he's God, but he's a man going through what we're going to have to go through. And it's not pleasant. And we, we need to not just read over it as just some cute story. Because in there are the lessons that we need to learn that, yes, you're going to have rough times. And the grace is there for you to get through it. And then the angels will come and minister to you and bring healing. I forget where the scripture is. It says the angels come, they bring healing in their wings. So it's realizing, humility is realizing that if there's anything good in you, it came from God or other people. So if you're talented, where did the talent come from? From God. If you've developed that talent, who did that? I know you worked hard, but who helped you? There's always other people involved. And humility is always a choice. All virtues are a choice. It's all up to you. doesn't mean you have the power to do it, but you do have the power to make the decision to do it. And once you do that, you either empower the kingdom of heaven or you empower the kingdom of darkness. And a lot of times we mix them. And we're up and down all the time, wondering why we're growing, but it's more like this. Up and down, up and down, slowly moving up the ladder here. It doesn't have to be that hard. And humility is a lifestyle that involves, it involves openness, and it's a prerequisite to being a servant. And it will show up in the, in the way you communicate. It'll show up in the way you dress, and it'll show up in the way you act. Okay. Humility will bring modesty. It'll bring a softness of speech. It'll, be, it'll bring actions that are more concerned about others than they are about yourself. And it's what brought Moses to the place he could speak with him face to face. And that's Numbers 12.3 where it says, I speak with Moses face to face. And individual humility will bring corporate unity. So if I'm humble and you're humble... We'll have unity at New Life. And it's very hard to fight with somebody who is humble. Even bullies get tired of punching somebody who won't punch back. That gets boring. So if you will always choose humility in every situation, the enemy has nowhere to take a root. See, once you... We talked about this last week. If you'll just be quiet, the enemy has nothing to work with. But it's when you engage that you now become part of the problem and he's got you. You're in it now. And humility says, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to be quiet. You know, now if somebody's swinging a baseball bat at you, duck. You know, don't just sit there and take it. But what I'm saying is, as you're engaging with people, don't fight people. We don't fight against people. Even in the church. We fight against the enemy. Scripture says we don't fight against flesh and blood. Okay, if I'm walking half in the kingdom of darkness, I've empowered the kingdom of darkness. It's going to come out of me. There's nothing I can do to stop it. So when you recognize that, instead of attacking me back and becoming part of that kingdom as well, when you respond in humility, it just stops the enemy right there. There's nothing else that you can do to me because I'm not giving you anything to use and if you don't choose to humble yourself and repent eventually you'll leave 
And a lot of times people leave the church because they just won't deal with their own pride and they can't engage enough to get enough satisfaction in the friction. And so they, they leave and they take that to somewhere else. And you know, there does come a point where you don't recognize anymore that you don't have the ability to make a decision. Uh, when I was in high school, we had a guy that we used to we used to bait because he would always say whatever you said he he was doing it too or was going to do it. So we would make up stories about TV programs that were on at the same time on two different channels. And this was before remotes and big TVs and you know wherever you know because now you could probably watch four shows at once. But he would always say that and and he would lie when he didn't even need to lie. But we thought it was funny, so we'd make him lie just by telling him something that wasn't true. And, uh, but you know, I saw him, um, gosh, it's probably been 15, 20 years. We've been out of high school 20, 25 years at that point. And you know what? He's still lying. And I, and I don't think he knows it anymore. He's a nice guy. But when you engage in conversation, he can't tell the truth from lie anymore. And I don't think he's capable of choosing not to lie. And that's when it gets scary. When you have become so uh, enamored with, with pride and arrogance and, and your world and you refuse to change. And God allows you to just, he turns you over. I think C.S. Lewis wrote in the, the Problem of Pain that hell is locked from the inside. God doesn't have to lock it. Because you've made choices for so long, you'll never choose against it. You'll just choose to stay there. And that happens to us if we don't deal with, with things. Because what, when we're going through all this, you know, it's pride, humility, grace, all these things. These aren't uh, stepping stones. All right? They're ongoing the rest of your life. And they go back to what we talked about last week was if your desire isn't right, these things are not going to help you. And you're going to be frustrated. If your desire and your foundation stays right, then grace comes, the relationship with God comes, the humility is there, the grace is there, unity comes, and the kingdom is working in your life and fully manifesting as you grow in your knowledge of him because that's what we're supposed to be doing. So corporate or individual humility brings corporate unity. Psalm 133 talks about how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the dew of Herman and oil on Aaron's beard, I think, or his robe. Just read Psalm 133. And doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. I can agree with nothing you say and be in unity with you. It's not unanimity. I can walk together with you in the Lord, and if I if we took a piece of paper out and I said, write your theological statement, your political statement, and some other statement, I doubt any of us would have the exact same two pieces of paper. But we can be in total unity. I'm not threatened by your thoughts. I'm not threatened by your ideas. And you shouldn't be by mine. And the more we do that, the more unity we have. And, you know, we, we do have a very unique situation here where we have a lot of different groups that we have a lot of fun with. And we celebrate the differences. And we learn to overcome the conflicts and then we continue to walk in, in unity. And it's in that place that God commands a blessing. You can't outrun his blessing. 
when you're in the place of unity. And being unified with somebody does not mean you buy into all their doctrine. It just means that you're going to make a choice that as much as it depends on you, you're going to live at peace with all men. And I can do that with Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Atheists. I'm not going to name any more. I'll forget somebody and they'll get mad. Okay, matter of fact, our differences are what make it fun. If everybody was like me, I'd be really bored. But I need you in my life to make my life richer. And you need me in yours. Some of you are really uptight. You need me to come around and say, hey, chill out. And then I need you to come around and say, hey, tighten up a little. <laughs> That's why Tim and I work together so well. We're, we're like uh, rubbing each other, sharpening each other. And I, and I can tell we've both learned a little bit from each other. And it's been fun. You know, there's over 20,000 denominations in the world. And not one of them was started out of unity. It was always out of disunity. You know, we're going to sprinkle, we're going to dunk, we're going to move the piano over here, we want green carpet, we want black carpet, we want every one of them. First, second, third, fourth Baptists in Houston. Might be more than that now. Or the first, second Baptist or the second, fourth Baptist. Anyway, you get the point. But it's all out of disunity, which is pride. And I don't know how many churches it is a week that are closing, but it's a lot. And it's because God's not there. Because if he was there, he says, you lift me up, I'll draw people. That's not the problem. The problem is when we draw them, what are we going to show them? That's where the problem is. And we're really good at getting saved and really bad at living and discipling. And we need to do better at that. And then the way to... The way you can test whether or not you're walking in humility. I'm going to give you a little test here. All right. Everybody take a breath and breathe it out. All right. That was a gift from God. If he ever decides to take his hand from you, you will die. Every breath is a gift. Gratefulness is how you measure whether or not you're walking in humility. If you ever want to know, am I being humble? Just say, am I being grateful? I used to love to go on mission trips in the 90s back in the former Soviet Union because you never knew if there was going to be hot water. You never knew if the lights were going to work. We used to directly wire a computer right to the phone line in the wall to try to get a signal to CompuServe back then to get one email. If we got one email, it was a party. But you know what it did is when I came home, I was so grateful for the smallest things. The lights came on. This is awesome. And it taught me gratefulness. You don't have to go through that to learn gratefulness. Just be grateful. And realize that you don't deserve anything except death. And if you have anything more than that, you're doing awesome. Even though it may not be your best day, you can still be grateful. There's always something to be grateful for. So start with gratefulness. That'll tell you whether you're walking in humility, which will cause unity gives you access to grace. Grace gives you the ability to do anything God says. What does God require of us? Love him and love people. And that will fully empower you to do that all the time. 
you never have to fail again. It's not that hard. And it's not that big, and it's for everybody on the planet. Are there specific ministries? Of course. Specific callings and giftings? Yes. But most of us are just supposed to learn to walk and live like Jesus did and just expand the kingdom wherever we go and bless those around us, pray for our enemies, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and just enjoy life and learn to live a kingdom life in this place so that when we get to heaven, we're ready for whatever is next. Because I just can't imagine that we're going to just go up there and sing forever. I just don't think I can handle it. <laughs> Unless we have kazoos. If we have kazoos, I could do it. <laughs> but you know what I mean. He's way too creative to have us go up there and sit, sit for eternity. Matter of fact, we actually come back here. So I'd be interested to see the changes when we come back. All right, any questions? We've got about 20 minutes. If there's any questions or thoughts. or I covered a lot of I usually take five to six hours to cover all this, so you guys really listen well. Yeah, <laughs> she said when she drives, it's hard for her to be humble. I've seen you drive. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I think in the car, though, that's like, isn't there a scripture somewhere that says that's like a cocoon, that's like off base? When you're in the car, you can cuss and yell at people, and, but then when you get out of the car, it's like, doesn't, it's like everything's fine, you know. <laughs> yeah, choosing to be known for who you really are. Nothing more, nothing less. And realizing that if there's anything good in you, it came from God and other people. Yes? Okay, the question was, is there a way to get to last week's? There is, but I'm not sure how. So I will find out for you. Yeah, I'll find out in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. We have a very simple question from the back <laughs> about reconciling uh, Jesus teaching us not to be led into, or praying, lead us not into temptation. And what was the other part of the question? I have no idea how to answer that. I mean, I'll, I'll just ramble on. I'm not a theologian, so I don't give it, you know, I'll just give it a shot since I'm up front here. <laughs> uh, I think when, when James is talking, he's saying that your appetites and everything are coming from inside. They're not coming from outside. You don't make me sin. You don't make me mad. 
I choose anger based on your actions, which is pride. Really. So you can't possibly make me angry. You can provoke me to choose anger, but we both answer for it. So if, if I was going to do, you know, let's say you hit me with a baseball bat and I yelled at you, but I had anger in my heart. So we would look at it as the whole event 100%. And we would say that Mo was guilty of 80% and Phil was guilty of 20 But God looks at it totally different. He looks at Mo's 80 and says, oh, no, that's a clear 100 And then he looks at my 20 and says, that's a clear 100 as well. And we're both fully responsible for what we do. Now, I'd have to look at the scripture where Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'd have to look at how that, what those words are. I don't think God ever leads us into temptation. So I don't know, I'll have to, I'll have to do some searching on that one. Anybody have any other thoughts on that? <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's the second half of the statement. Lead us not temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not insinuating that he leads us into evil. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of emphasizing, you know, to deliver us from evil. Mm-hmm. Right. It's well documented. Don't leave me. Keep me from the things that my idolatrous heart lusts after. Mm-hmm. Keep them away from me. Right. That could be it. Yeah. <laughs> it's on Gilman. Yeah. But don't forget, too, it doesn't matter what you're tempted with. 
that comes from inside of you. There is grace immediately available. And the, the goal is that no matter where you get led, to take the grace to, to avoid sin. And I think, you know, you're probably really close there. That He's saying, God, don't lead us into the path of our own lust. Uh, what you'd think he'd be able to do that. It's interesting, though. But the idea that you never have to sin is for sure in Scripture. Will you? Yeah, probably before tomorrow morning. But you don't have to. And the more we get aware of him and his presence and his grace, the easier it is to to stop it before it takes root. And then, you know, I think over time your appetites can change. Your desires change. You know, most of the time that God's dealing with me now, it's an attitude that nobody sees unless I roll my eyes. But you know what I mean. It's, it's an internal squabble that he's trying to help me identify uh, because I'm supposed to be getting more and more like Jesus over time. It shouldn't be this. I shouldn't be fighting the same things next year I'm fighting this year. Or I'm not growing. All right, well, let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your amazing provision to help us live a life that's pleasing to you. And I ask that uh, as we go home, that the things that matter would be rooted deeply in us, in our hearts, that we would think on it overnight or even tomorrow. Anything that wasn't from you or was wrong, I ask you to remove it and to uh, just eliminate it. And I just pray that we'll never be the same starting tomorrow. We'll be different than today. And then on Friday, we'll be different than tomorrow. Lord, we bless you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.